Hey, Josh. Hey, Nate. How are you doing this week? I am doing pretty good. Um, it's Thursday, which is uh, nice because that means it's getting close to the weekend. It's usually like once you get through Wednesday, then it's like Thursday is pretty easy. And then Friday is kind of downhill. And it's like life is good when uh, when it's Thursday and Friday around here. Cool. Yeah, we usually record. What day do we usually record? Wednesdays? I don't remember. Yeah, I think so. Something like that. It's been it's been getting wonky lately. We've done a couple. <laughs> uh, if, if people have noticed, we've been releasing an episode a week for the past few weeks, um, just because mm-hmm. we had a bit of just some different things to chat about, and uh, I think we've got a uh, some new listeners based off of just. I think after I went on the Indie Hackers podcast, we've we've got some new Indie Hacker listeners. So, hi, new listeners. Hopefully, you're still sticking around. If not. You didn't hear it, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> We're glad to have you with us. It's good to have yes. a, a new people, and uh, yeah, do uh, do reach out to us if you have things you'd like to hear us talk about, or uh, comments, or things like that. We'd love to love to hear from you. Definitely, definitely. And uh, we also just released the first video one, so people are probably like in shock, looking at our goofy faces <laughs> and whatnot. And um, but but anyway. Uh, before before we got on, you were talking about a shirt, and um, I'm wearing a a shirt that says uh, "Better Done Than Perfect," right? So, yeah, um, yeah, from the user list, folks. Yep, yep, from uh, Jane and Benedict. Uh, they sent it to us, and you were saying something interesting. You, you mentioned you 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 don't wear the shirt in public. <laughs> No, I only wear it at home because, like, uh, when I when I wear better done than perfect in public, I get people that say to me, they say, like, um, do you just like not do a good job at your work and you just like push out like half done stuff and like, you know, is your software actually like garbage and you just don't care? And I'm like, no, like I care a lot. Like, you know, when I'm giving software to a client, it's really important that it works properly. But um, so who who is that? so? How many people have approached you about that? There's definitely been like two or three, and maybe maybe I'm just like overthinking it a bit too. There's definitely that's possible. It's interesting because yeah, I mean I wear it all the time, um, yeah. and maybe wearing it out is a different thing. Like you know, there's not I I, I leave the house, but not a ton. But mm. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of interesting. No one's ever said anything. Like I wear all kinds of goofy t-shirts, and like it's rare that anyone actually mentions anything. Mm. So. Maybe, maybe it's my, just the circles maybe my friends, in. Maybe my friends just have a low filter. They're just willing to say anything. Yeah, or maybe mine have been conditioned to me just wearing just all kinds of like weird graphic tees and stuff. And just in general, they're like, hmm, okay, cool, whatever. Just roll yeah. it. Uh, I got I to gotta mix it up then. I just got to find a bunch of other quirky ones to go. wear. You got to confuse them with randomness and then it just kind of <laughs> all works out in the wash. You know? <laughs> in Setting the expectations. Wash. <laughs> yeah. Uh, didn't mean that, but that was a good one. Nice. Cool. So how, how are you doing? We didn't, we didn't get to that part yet. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, uh, just got back from, uh, uh, a bit of a business retreat. Um, actually, I'll, I'll talk more about that on another episode. I don't want to dribble on too long before we get to our topic today, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. So good. Good. Glad to hear that. So what uh, what did you want to talk about today? Uh, you were asking for a book suggestion the other day, and I threw at you uh, the book suggestion of Thinking in Bets. Um, mm-hmm. It's by Annie Duke. 
who is a poker player back in the days when like poker was on TV a lot. And I think she has a brother that plays, but she has an interesting backstory. And I actually even heard her being interviewed by the Andreessen Horowitz people like mm-hmm. 16Z on a podcast like years ago, hearing about the book. Um, but I always really enjoyed the book uh, and and just kind of it helped kind of jigger, jigger my brain a bit on thinking about, you know, bets in life and in business and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, no, it was a great read and uh, we'll definitely link to it in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot about like how to think about strategy, how to think about um, yeah limiting your losses, how to understand a world that is um, not always clear, right? Like it's, uh, I think she kind of goes into like the world of poker, especially, but it's more broadly applicable of just things aren't always what they seem. And um, you don't always know what the outcome actually is. And, you know, if it's something to learn from or if it's just noise, randomness or something like that. Um, and so I really appreciated the, especially the truth seeking element of it. Just, you know, we want to figure out like what works and what doesn't and how do we kind of get to the bottom of that? Uh, with the least amount of detours and that sort of thing. Yeah, it was definitely a good like mind shift or or mindset type of book because it's easy for us to dig in our own little holes of thinking about marketing and the product and development and all those types of things. And oftentimes we're doing deep work that has like takes a lot of time and oftentimes you're kind of not thinking about the inputs going into that. So like you're building a product, like you're not thinking about the audience or the, how much, where you're going to get those people and they're coming down. And was there a way I could have tested this earlier versus spending months building, you know, Mm -hmm. X. So it's definitely kind of reminds me of like thinking about MVPs and that, how years ago that became, you know, the lean startup movement became like a, a shock to the system of how people, built software and it's sort of like, well, how can you even move further up the tunnel and test things and, and thinking about the impact even before you're just, you know, jumping into action, so to speak. Yeah. And maybe kind of what you're getting towards too, like that she talks about a lot in the book is kind of figuring out where you are right today and where you want to go and making basically a tree of what the outcomes could be, right? Like I make a product, it could work, it could not work okay, well, there's lots of subcategories of work and not work. So like, you know, maybe it gets product product fit, but the, the pricing model doesn't work. Uh, maybe it gets pricing is great, but the people don't stick around in the product. And basically just building out a decision, decision tree and um, kind of trying to de-risk each of those decision tree points. So, right, like, you know, looking ahead to, well, maybe this will fail. What are some uh, things I can do today to try and de-risk the the possibility of it failing and try and twist the odds more in my favor, or at least know ahead of time what I'm getting into. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. So I'm definitely going to lean more on you for the, the because you've you, you read the mm-hmm. book more recently than I have. Like I read it a few years ago and I codified some concepts in my brain. So they could have drifted <laughs> by now or the way I'm saying it so few please feel free to bring that back to, to book concepts as it, as it rings a bell. Um, but for me, like the biggest thing is, was thinking about more improbabilities, right. And more mm. of like taking a step back. And for me, a lot of it, one of the big things I took away is it's, it's easy to kind of just 
skip that part because you kind of want it to work and you're saying, oh, well, of course people are going to do this, this, and this. But then if you really step back and you go, well, are they actually going to do X or Y? And let me actually think about the realistic probabilities of that and just box that in, just live in that Mm -hmm. like top layer of just like, someone going down a certain direction you're like okay there's there's going to be a i should i i can make a i can make a educated guess in probability and probably be reasonably accurate you know given mm-hmm. given the constraints but oftentimes i think people don't do that maybe they don't want to know the answer and it kind of yes. they really want to do the thing so they just do the thing and then later on they're upset where like it didn't work out but did you really think it was going to work? And they're kind of like, well, yeah, well, I don't know. Now that I think about it, yeah, that makes sense why it didn't. And I probably yeah. could have thought about it that way three months ago. Yeah. And I think that's so much of like we, we especially I think as business owners, we want to, we think that everything's going to work out in the end, right? We want the happy story. And so sometimes we do that at the expense of like not paying attention to reality or not digging deep enough, like you said into like the knowledge that we actually have or the knowledge we easily could get um, that would disprove the theory that we have. And I think that's really what I was getting out of this book is just like um, changing the mindset from like, I have a dream, I'm going to build it, it will work or I'll figure it out to a, um, you know, trying to figure out what that probability actually is that that dream might work and what factors might play into it and like, what is the probability that this will actually work out? And, you know, maybe as part of that discovery, I'll be able to tweak my goal in such a way that it will actually be very probable that it will work out. Um, and I always there's some uncertainty, but at least um, I'm more understanding what the world will be okay with and less about what I think would be awesome because I had this cool idea. Right. Now, I, I think, yeah, there's two things I kind of picked up out of what you're saying. And I think by default, you know, we're engineers, we're makers, we like to build stuff. And we, you know, if you, if you take that and you pair it with a dream of like great success as a indie hacker or as a founder or whatever. Right. But there's this middling area in between, which is like, okay, what is the probability? And it gets into more strategic thinking. It's not, it's maybe it's that maker versus manager kind of argument. I don't know. Most people talk about that, but I'd go even further than manager. It's almost like as a business owner, because you mentioned that as a business owner, you need to be like a strategist on your thing. Mm-hmm. Now, oftentimes we're both people and that's hard to separate. But if you really think about it from a strategist standpoint and think about probabilities and where are these going to happen, it's ask yourself the hard questions yeah. that maybe oftentimes like an investor would ask. So I think that's like a forcing function to take your brain out of the maker and I want to build the thing and I just want this to exist in the world like dream. Um, But then it's kind of like, well, is it possible? How, you know, is the world ready for this? What is the market size or where are you going to find customers? All these ones you're like, well, I'll figure that out later. And it's like, (laughs) no, (laughs) especially as a bootstrap, you know, self-funded, like you're, you have, you have less choices and, and you can't just throw money at the problem. So you do have to step back and think about those probabilistic mm-hmm. things before you place your bets, right? Like analysis yeah. before like the bets and which is your betting with your time essentially. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it really feels like a, like a kind of like a maturing, right? Like that process of ch- that changing that way of thinking. It feels like you're kind of going from being like the teenager version of yourself where, you know, most things are, are roses and like you could do anything and the world is your oyster and all that to, you know, real life of like, you know, being an adult and having to pay the mortgage and rent and whatever else it is, um, you know, just kind of coming to terms with the, the reality of the world and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think that's so why, like, oftentimes the second time founder story or the second time product, like, it makes more sense because the beginning, you're 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 a newbie at all of it, and let's be honest, like, let's mm-hmm. like as an entrepreneur, you might have come in with a skill set and a craft, but you're you're not really a business owner yet. You know, calling yourself a founder, calling yourself a CEO, all of these types of things, like, until you're actually kind of driving those direction and answer asking yourself those hard questions but you don't know to ask themselves like you just know you have a will and drive to build something yeah <laughs> and 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 a dream of what the outcome is but that middling area of how do you get from a to b is the hard part you know how to do a yeah and and that's exciting and it's often what you need to do to even start to mature and break your own mindset because it's not traditional like Mm-hmm. Just learn jobs you learned on the or skills you learned on the job are not the same as being an owner. Oh, yeah. And like you only learn to be an owner by being an owner, right? Like right. I think there's plenty of examples of that, even with people who go to business school where, yeah, they learn the theory. But once you're really in the trenches, that's where you kind of learn a lot of those things. Yeah, I think that's really, really, really interesting. One other thing that I thought was really neat in the book was um, she had this whole concept around um, like capping your losses and so the way that worked out in poker was um basically she would after uh, losing a certain amount or um spending a certain amount of time at a table um she would have to leave regardless of what was happening at the moment um you know end the hand and you're done um and that was basically a safeguard for um getting too into the moment and just you know ending up in a bad situation because you weren't thinking clearly in that situation. Um, and I thought that was really neat. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's good. I think that's gets into emotional states, right. And all kinds mm-hmm. of other reasons why you do things that are not rational, why you continue to do things, right. Like, like a loss aversion where you have started working on a thing and you're just like, well, I just want to finish it. Even though later on, Maybe down the road, you'll find out like, well, there was no cheese down that tunnel and you wasted a lot more <laughs> of your time digging over there. But, yeah. you know, you know, time boxing people, you know, people do things like that or just I think I've thrown that at you a lot. Like where I'm like, OK, you have two months. You can scratch that itch. But after two months, you got to figure X out. Right. Like, let's yeah. not let this go on forever. Yeah. And I do find that hard, though, with like uh, especially with technical problems. Like with marketing problems, I kind of get that because it feels to be a very gray area. But with technical problems, I find it more, it's it's often hard to um, to guess at how long it will take to solve a particular technical problem. And for sure, there is a limit somewhere, right? Like you can't work on a uh, unsolvable problem for the rest of your life. That would not be useful. Um, but, you know, I, I'm thinking that especially with this testing system I've been working on. Um, I've kind of left it, left, uh, had a break on it for the last little while, but, um, yeah, I feel like, I think we said June or something like that for that one, mm-hmm. but I feel like if it went past June, I feel like I would still want to 
to spend some more time on it because um, I don't know. I see the I see the benefit of that system, and I see that it is within reach. Um, and maybe that's the whole part of being in the moment and thinking unclearly. But. <laughs> well, I think you know what would potentially help you there is creating some other stopgap. So maybe it isn't just a time thing, but it's just like, I need to achieve X by this time period. And maybe that's, I don't remember that part of her book, but also like, hey, if I've hit this amount of loss by this time, like I just have to walk away regardless, right? right. So, and and maybe it's a similar thing where it's like, I need to at least achieve these two milestones by mm-hmm. this time. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to, let's give Nate, he has to achieve this tech, this one technical thing, it may not be the end goal, but it might be a good segue or step towards the bigger thing. And it's like, I need to accomplish these two things by June, right? Mm-hmm. And like, let me box that in to then allow myself to continue. So it's like, okay, I can only take this much loss, but mm-hmm. if I am making progress towards the bigger thing and I need to accomplish these 10 things, but I did two of them, like, okay, yeah. like I'm at least I'm not getting stalled and stuck. Yeah. And I think that's really like what I was thinking of too, just like having forward progress, um, that you are making progress on something like, because this testing thing seems to be like a high reward type of thing. It's like, there is a fairly, um, large budget time budget on working on that. As long as there is forward progress, if there's not forward progress and it stalls, then it's kind of like, well, like, can you actually even solve this problem? Uh, maybe you need to go work on something else. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I think also what also helps to potentially spread out that bet, right? Like mm-hmm. is getting more context. And I think you've been doing this. We've talked about talking yeah. to other people and I think continuing those. So you add more, you know, uh, breadth to the yeah. problem scope, you know, in terms of its business value and whatnot and how other people see it. Cause eventually you're going to have to bubble up and sell it to somebody. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> you're, I, I think if dual threading that, if you're continuing to do that along the way and expanding it and letting it sort of help shape the direction, because right now it's easy mm-hmm. to kind of, I think right now you're more or less pointing in a general direction. It's like, I'm going to solve these things. And I, I think this is possible. Um, but yeah. having some narrow scoping with understanding customer needs could probably help identify some of the smaller goals. Yeah. And I think especially with the testing thing, like it, it's very clear that there's a generic problem to be solved, but that that needs to be made specific for a certain group of people. And so figuring, um, while I'm working on the generic problem to figure out what specific problem needs to be solved there. Um, yeah, I think that's the, the thing to figure out. Yeah. So if, um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about with experiments and bets is, I actually created a board for myself recently uh, related to that. So for referral rock type of work. So what I think what you get tied into once you get started with working on projects and working on a business is you do know what you do know the direction to run and where there's going to be continuous value. And I think for the most part, referral rock is doing that. We know you know, the marketing missions we need to do to get more customers. We know the product things we're doing to improve retention, to improve the value proposition, all of these types of things. Um, but at this stage, I, I have a team and a lot of them are working on those things. Mm-hmm. And it's nice that I'm not 
in those details as much anymore. Um, I'm still studying strategy and all these other things, but what I'm finding interesting and fun again is getting back to sort of my roots of like experimenting and prototyping and different things, not necessarily me coding, <laughs> yeah. but on the board I have, and it, it, it's at certain things like there's a, there's an idea I have around uh, how, how we can provide other value to, well, I'll talk about a specific feature as an interesting experiment. So it could be easy for us to go and build out like SMS features. We don't have an mm-hmm. SMS feature. Some people have requested those, right? But it's a lot of infrastructure. It's a lot of like kind of how do you roll this out, UIs and all these types of things. But um, one of the things we're thinking about is for like members that join or for program to get notifications on updates. And maybe it's browser notifications, it's SMS, it's all kinds of other like lighter weight bumps and reminders, right? Like we do send emails, Mm -hmm. but there are all these other products out there that do this already. I don't know if you've seen things like, um, I think it's called Magic Bell. No, I haven't heard of that one. Um, It's funny, have you ever seen that flow chart of how... uh, Slack sends notifications. Oh yeah, like crazy complex one. Yeah, so it's really cool, and and I think it's services like Magic Bell, and I think there's another one called Knock App. Okay, but essentially, it's meant for you as a SaaS to to like uh, to to have a another service that just manages all those notifications. Is a widget in your app that puts a bell on the thing, and and mm-hmm. it sends you the notification. So it could be a way to bake that feature in for like your product users, right? Yeah, okay. So interesting, so, fun thing that you can dive into. Got it? It'd be fun to build, right? But but building that and rolling it, like there's, there, and we have two users, right? There is mm-hmm. the person that is our admin that is going in and setting up the referral program. And then there's the people participating. So it's like right. our customers' customers that are joining yep. the referral program. But- I want to actually move the needle for them and provide value. It's like them getting notifications that the our customers getting notifications. We already have kind of a mechanism. It's kind of loose, but what I'm interested in experimenting on is the uh, people in the referral program getting notifications. They're the ones more likely. They're the consumers that are more likely to subscribe to a in app notification to an SMS mm-hmm. and that type of thing. But as an experiment. I might roll out one of these services before we even build it ourselves. So like I could probably right. integrate one of these services into even our own portal for like our own referral program or roll mm-hmm. it out as a beta for a couple customers. Cause right. But it and may not scale well for us across like, you know, we have like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people enrolling for referral programs on our customers behalf. But yeah, but that's the right. way I've been thinking about it. Right. So the way of de-risking it is basically that you don't build the infrastructure, you pay Gong or whatever it was, a uh, monthly fee, um, and you use their DIY builder thingy that is easy to do. Um, and then you don't have to build any infrastructure or you build like hardly any infrastructure to get it set up. And that's a great way of de-risking it. I think that's a, actually a common pattern uh, in software where you don't build it if you don't have to. And then when you rely on it so much that it becomes expensive, then you build it in-house. Um and I think that's uh, that's really smart. That's really cool. I I don't think actually a lot of people do it as no. much in this manner, right? Because like you talk like you if you were on the engineering team, you'd be like, I want to build that thing. Let's go build that thing. <laughs> like 
Like that sounds yeah. fun and cool, <laughs> right? Like it's the product manager or someone else saying, let's carve it out this way. Like, and most people are thinking like our mo- our general motions are building the product, like having a, maybe a couple beta customers that are using this feature and then rolling it out to everyone else. Like everyone's thinking the full depth, full mile, but maybe it's not going to make an impact at all, right? Like I might set that out and send it out to an active customer base and like 2% actually enroll for the SMS uh, things or, you know, 5% get the notifications, but it doesn't actually increase their engagement. So it's like, oh, did that, it was a bet on, is the consumer behavior going to work out in a positive manner? And it's a lot cheaper, right? And I don't think a lot of people think about it that way. Like they think about it rolling into their own product, right? Like instead of building that, I would build it for my admin interface or I'm going to use a, you know, some of these uh, low code or no code, like onboarding, you know, app queues or these types of things. Like I'm going to roll those in, but I don't know if they think about it as like using as experimental features (laughs) for uh, inside their, their, their app. I don't know. Maybe there are, but. That's interesting because, like, I think that's the way to do it. Like, um, don't build custom software if you don't have to. But when you do, then you do that as like a, a second option. There are some people I think that go the other way. They just right away build the custom solution so they can save the money on um, the long long term life of the project. But that does sort of assume that you know whatever it is is going to work out for sure, which isn't always the case. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's fun and easy to build, and we've we've fallen into both traps. Like we built out full features that ended up getting very little usage, right? So, and there's not always a way to do that. Like one one good example of one we've done well in the past is like Zapier is a great hack, right? For that mm-hmm. type of thing, it's like okay, build your inner, make sure your SaaS APIs can marry up to Zapier, and then like instead of building out fifty integrations for 50 different customers, like you build it there and maybe you're helping them set up their zaps. And then once you have sort of more uh, energy around a certain like integration, let's say it's MailChimp and Hey, actually one out of every uh, or five out of every 10 customers are using that. And instead of continuing to send them to Zapier, let's look at the patterns they've established. What are the routines and, and actions and, uh, methods they use and now let's just like build it right into the product right so yeah. that's like kind of taking a bet approach before you do that and that's a common one i think everyone knows those patterns right yeah for at least apis yeah one one other part that she kind of talked about in the book that i thought was really interesting was the um like the truth-seeking element of you know trying to get everybody on your team to be aligned around truth-seeking and um yeah basically shaping the culture in that way and I wonder how you found that with like having a larger team, because that's that's when it really becomes valuable, right? Like that your your people working on specific projects are willing to tell you the truth if you don't want to hear it. And that, you know, they're also willing to receive truth from others um, without, uh, you know, taking a shot to the ego or anything like that. How how have you thought about that or how do you find that? It's hard, uh, but yeah. I I think what's interesting is... So this may come out of left field, but it's another one of these like Josh philosophical thoughts. But as, I, as I've approached and brought on different people with the team, there are people that are like, I would say, um, 
oh, I would say default to yes people. Like, ooh, that sounds cool. Let's go do that. That sounds fun, right? And there's also default to no people where the initial thought is just like, no, that's too hard. Or no, I don't understand. I don't think we should do that, right? there. There's like gut reaction. And there, I think there are more people that are like, naturally curious and like energetic and like oh yeah yeah like they're they're just they're just slightly defaulting more to the yes and other people that uh that they're they're just naturally going to default to the no and on both sides you know smart people consider the other options afterwards they make a default knee-jerk reaction and i think what has been helpful for us is we've had a mix of both of those type of people so like Mixing too many yes peoples together, like you end up just trying to do way too many things, right? And and like everyone says yes to everything, and you're you're you have ten threads going, and you have too many no people. Then like it's just sort of there's no growth, there's like not uh, opportunities. So I think that balance helps the truth seeking, like helps that like double check each other. And you might get frustrated with that person, like oh this person's always no, or I have to convince them more, but it's kind of a good idea sometimes to take, to slow your role and certain team members might be like more opposed. Cause like, well, how are we going to maintain that? How are we going to, they're going to give you all the counter reasons. Um, and I think that mix of people um, from a culture standpoint, like has worked well for us. Um, I think it, I've been saved a lot of times cause I am more of a yes person. I'm more of like, a, Ooh, this sounds cool. And then, and then I go look at the queue and then someone's like, well, when are we going to do this versus that? And I'm like, yeah, you have to, that you have to create an environment where the structures I think help you make those decisions and, and the, and the natural people, like the people that are, if I had just yes, people, we'd be all over the board. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think like that's easy as a, an, or easier maybe as an owner to be excited about the upside of things and not to necessarily see the downside and that's hard, especially when you have operations people who are quick to say, well, what about all these 50 million other things? And um, yeah, I've definitely been on both sides of that. So I can uh, I can appreciate the difficulty there. But that is good, though, that you have like people on different sides that kind of take time to, to figure that out and kind of balance each other out. I mean, in practicality, it is really hard. It's really hard to get people to feel like it's a safe space to say what they think and without worried about repercussions. Right. And, and I also personally have to be aware of power dynamics. Like when I say things like that, it doesn't just get taken out of context or like, Oh, Josh needs this or something like that. Right. So I think just, just being careful on those and making sure that like using opportunities to lift people up when they say things, even if it's, you know, maybe not the best idea, but just like, workshopping it and just kind of asking more questions versus immediately jumping to it. No, that's a terrible idea. And then that person isn't going to bring things up anymore. Right. Or the hard thing is I feel like most of the world is conditioned to like, you know, gut reactions and power dynamics and all these other things that just like, I don't know, people get, get shell shocked or get damaged by past things. Like, you know, whether it's a relationship, whether it's like, you know, uh, getting rejected, asking people out on a date or whatever, all these little things and people get naturally conditioned in self-preservation. So try to make sure that you're reconditioning people to have that safe space, you know, is hard. Um, so yeah. I do think we try to create it. Um, I think we get a lot of people that, but, but just being, being conscious of that 
helps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a tough job. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but the nice thing is, once you do it, and once you have the right people in place, it it multiplies, right? Like culture becomes as sort of viral, right? Like it's just that culture is culture. Like it becomes just in the water. So then when someone walks in and they notice it, you know, the next person adapts quicker because they see it. They see all the way other people are interacting with each other. So it's hard because it takes time to do that, making sure the right people are on the boat. But um, I think when you, when you have built it, and that's sort of why I'm excited about what, what we've, what we've built in referral rock is like, I feel like we have that type of culture. Um, and, um, but it's, there's more, more weight in that direct, in the good direction than there is in the bad direction. So then it's, it's, it's easier to perpetuate forward and keep it coming as long as we're being, um, uh, what's the word, just careful about who we are bringing on the team and, and our vetting and having good conversations with, you know, new people and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think like your personality also lends towards that. Like, I think you're quite willing to accept truth from people and also to uh, give it to people who ask. So I'm sure that helps you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel like that's part of this podcast, right? It's just being willing to being willing to say what you think and, you know, not being afraid that it's, there's some other motivation or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think if anything, you know, we do have some strong statements we make at times, like the past few episodes about like not raising prices, but then if you realize it's all in the the conversation and we're not really for one, if anything, we just, you know, uh, get on our own soapboxes and rail against when there's like one hammered down message out there. And it's like, it's more complex than that. Stop. Like, like get people to think a bit. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so any so, other uh, any other roundups about the book that you found valuable? No, I think it was uh, I think it was really good. Listen, um, if anyone is looking for to improve their decision making, I think this is a great great book. Um, yeah, just power on through it. Some of the parts are a little bit slower than others, but definitely. Did she narrate it? Who who was yeah. that? Like you you did an audio book, right? So. Yeah, I did the audiobook, and it was uh, her, Annie Duke, uh, read it. Okay. And, uh, cool. Yeah. I think she has another book. I don't know. I didn't. I know she has another book since then because this one came out a few years ago. But I haven't. Mm. I haven't looked into that one yet. So. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. Anything from you? Cool. No, I think that's it. I think uh, this was an interesting one. So yeah, check out that book. I think it's good from a mindset perspective especially as we're doing startup stuff. Like I think yeah. we actually had an episode about, you know, small bets. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but we take a different take on it. So that might be a good one to go back and throw that in our face on, on, uh, cause I was a, a no small bets person, but it was from a different type of thing. So yeah, yeah. I do like to take bets, but. You know. uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Josh. It's been, uh, been a cool. slice. All right. Talk to you later. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you want to chat with us, we're on Twitter. I'm at Nate Bosher and Josh is at JLogic. If you're a new listener, uh, check out some of our most popular episodes. Episode 52, 7 Years to 22 MRR and Zombie Startups, or Episode 30, Review Sites Are a Necessary Evil and Hacks to Get Around Them. 
Thanks again. <laughs>